and it was eerily silent. And they found skeletons of two men laying over a large quantity of gold. And on the table was a letter telling of their successful search for the precious metal. And yet in their eagerness to attain more, they did not pay attention to the coming winter that would come early that year. One morning they awoke to find that the great snowstorm was upon them. And for days, the tempest raged, cutting off all hope of escape. Their small amount of food was soon exhausted, and they laid down and they died amidst abounding gold. Can you imagine the conversations that these two must have had? Each day, talking about all of the things they were going to do with their newfound riches, all the while neglecting to make provision for what was to come. Whether it was owing to their lack of discernment, their lack of preparation, or just simply their proud immaturity, their refusal to plan for what was to come led to their deaths. Some 30 years after the resurrection and the ascension of Jesus Christ, back to heaven, Peter is writing to a group of Christians who are being targeted by false teachers. Teachers who are from within the church, teachers who would affirm a lot of what these Christians believed. And we saw last week in verse 4 of chapter 3 in 2 Peter that at the heart of their error, at the, the crux of their false teaching, was that they did not believe in the second coming of Jesus Christ. And because they didn't believe in Jesus' return, Chapter 2 of 2 Peter made clear that they were living grossly sexual, immoral lives. They were promiscuous in their living. And Peter writes to say that much like the prospecting party, that because they refuse to believe the truth about what is to come, the ultimate end would be destruction. Peter's pointed to the promises of God. Peter has looked to the word of God. Peter has talked about his eyewitness account and the historical events in order to build a case of the certainty with which the Bible makes clear about the coming day of the Lord. And that coming day of the Lord will consist of both judgment for the wicked and salvation for the righteous. Some 2,000 years later, Peter's timeless words echo with a unique sense of relevance for us this morning. A unique sense of relevance. You see, today's mantra and mentality is live it up for today is all that you have. We are a culture of credit not a culture of savings. We thrive on immediacy. And marketers know this well. When was the last time you saw a commercial that after painting just the idea that you need a break, a well-deserved break, that the commercial then went to saying, and you will get one 
after you have worked hard for many years and saved accordingly for that break. No, no, no. That's not what we're hearing. We're hearing you deserve it today. And the assumption is that because you haven't been able to do something today, that threatens the prospect that you ever will. How can a people who give everything to this way of thinking, that I need it today, how can a people like that ever get excited about the future return of the Lord? What's to such a people that Peter writes 30 years after the resurrection, the ascension of Christ? And it's to such a people some 2,000 years later that I speak to this morning. Peter's warning stands true for us this morning. Friends, don't be led astray from devotion to God and from the truth of God's word because you believe that today is all that we have. Today is not all that we have. Peter's point is that if today in this world is all that we have, then we are to be pitied the most because as he said, everything that we have, this world will give way. It will burn. And so don't give yourself over to the pleasures of this world. Don't devote yourself to accumulating more money. Don't spend your life building moments for the praise of this world because Peter says it's all going to burn. If that's what you live for, then on the day that it matters most, you will have nothing to show. And so Peter says, live for what lasts. Live for what lasts. It's the title of the sermon. I would like to pray that each of us in here this morning would be stopped in our tracks as we heed the words of Peter. And so in order for us to rightly heed them, we must rightly hear them. And I want to pray that the Spirit would help us do both. Let's pray. Our holy God, we approach you because you have made a way through Christ. I sense my, my weakness and the neediness that I have even in the task of preaching. God, I long for your people to be built up with truth. And so, Lord, I pray that you would allow there to be clarity of thought. There would be proper expressions. There would be a sense of fervency and urgency. God, I pray that you would allow us all to, to grasp a sense of what it is that's being preached. Would you allow us much grace to apply those truths to our lives? God, we do pray that you would attend with power the truth that is taught. You would awaken our attention. And I pray that we would be refreshed and we would be melted and we would be convicted and we would be comforted, that you would help us see that the Bible presents to us the strongest arguments for why we should be holy. Oh, for your glory and for our good, make us holy. 
To that end, may the sermon that is heard be far more effective than the one that is preached. Help us, we pray, in Christ's name. Amen. If you have your Bibles, I invite you to open them to 2 Peter. 2 Peter chapter 3 will be in the last few verses of 2 Peter chapter 3. This will conclude our series through this small letter. And really, these verses will draw not just this section, but the whole letter to a close. I believe that we can follow three sections this morning that will underscore the call to live for what lasts. And so those three sections will serve as the outline for the sermon. The first section is this. Live godly lives because of what is to come. Live godly lives because of what is to come. We see this in verses 11 through 13. Since all of these things are to be destroyed in this way, what sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness? Looking for and hastening the coming of the day of the Lord because of which the heavens will be destroyed by burning and the elements will melt with intense heat. But according to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Peter begins, verse 11, with this phrase, since all these things are to be destroyed in this way. If you were to look back at verse 10, what you would see is that Peter has just made the case that this day of the Lord, this coming day of judgment for the wicked and salvation for the righteous, it will come like a thief in the night. No one knows the day or the time. And when it comes, the elements will be destroyed with intense heat and the earth and its works will be burned up. And so Peter begins and says, since all these things are to be destroyed this way, all these things would be the heavens and the earth. Destroyed in what way? Destroyed by consuming fire as an act of judgment. And Peter says, I... I I tell you this truth not to simply satisfy your curiosity. No, I tell you this truth so that you would know what sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness. Knowing how the end will be ought to compel Christians. It ought to motivate Christians to holy behaviors and godly living. And the descriptors for for how to live lives that are marked by holy behaviors and godly living, the descriptors are in verse 12. They're looking for the coming day of the Lord. They are hastening the coming day of the Lord. Peter says, any who disregard the world to come will not live well in the present world. If all you have is a this is all there is mentality, if you disregard what is to come, you will not live well in this world. Three times in these few verses, in verses 12 through 14, the phrase look forward to is mentioned. There's this eager expectation that Peter is saying ought to mark true believers. They are to look forward to 
And so the notion that we are so heavenly minded that we're no earthly good, Peter says is false. To be earthly good, we ought to be most heavenly minded. We look forward to, we eagerly anticipate and expect the coming day of the Lord. What would your life look like if your driving, consuming passion and desire was to be prepared today for the day in which he returns? If there's a drastic difference in how you would live, friends, I would just tell you on the basis of the authority of God's word, you are not thinking right about the coming day of the Lord. It may happen in just a few hours. It may happen in just a few years. We get the looking forward to something part, but what about the hastening? What about this? Can, can believers really sort of speed up when it is the Lord is going to return? Is God simply in heaven waiting on us to do our part so that he can do his part. Is that what Peter's teaching? No. No, we believe what the Bible says, Acts chapter 1, verse 7, that the Father really has fixed the times and the seasons by his own authority. We saw last week in verse 9 that that, that delay in the Lord's return, it's not a delay because he's forgetful. It's not a delay because he's slow. It's a delay... We see it as a delay because he's patient. He's patiently awaiting his flock to enter his fold. If you were to read John chapter 10, what you would see is Jesus saying, I am the good shepherd. And there's a relationship the good shepherd has with his sheep. And in John chapter chapter 10, Jesus says, I believe it's in verse 16, Jesus says, there are sheep that are not yet of my fold who when they hear the shepherd's voice, they will come in. And in this time of salvation history, between the, the first coming and the second coming of the Lord, we are, we are in that time of sheep not yet in the fold, hearing the shepherd's voice and becoming a part of his fold. He's patiently awaiting his flock to enter his fold. The Father gave the Son all who belong to Him. And as the calendar turns, sheep are being brought in, leading us ever closer to the conclusion of history as we know it. And so from a human perspective, we can say that our cooperation with the will of God our obedience to his commands for repentance during this time before judgment comes, that is fulfilling his purposes. That is hastening the day of the Lord. His delay has a purpose. And our repentance brings us ever closer to that time. Jesus said, The Father knows the day and the hour of his return. Mark chapter 13, verse 32. And because the Father knows, we rest in the fact that it will come. We ought to desire the coming of the Lord. If the Lord's purpose in returning is is not yet, then as we repent and encourage others to do the same, we can and do hasten the day of His 
return. But what's interesting is that Peter's call for us to live holy and godly lives, that call isn't merely because of the fiery judgment that's to come, but as we see in verse 13, it's also because of the promise of a new world, the promise of a transformed heaven and earth. If you were to flip back to Isaiah chapter 65, verse 17, what you would find is the prophecy going forth saying, For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth. So the people of God were awaiting this new heavens and this new earth, which the Lord had promised. And the prospect of the new heavens and the new earth was a motivation for holy living. Why? Because righteousness would dwell there. And so the implication is that these false teachers who are living unrighteous lives, they won't be in the new heavens and the new earth. And all who get swept away and follow along and live and lead ungodly and unholy lives, they will not be in the new heavens and the new earth. I would encourage you even just to read, maybe this afternoon or some point this week, read uh, some point this week, read Revelation chapters. 21 and 22, to just consider, consider what you gain, friends, whenever this earth as we know it is burned in judgment and a new heaven and a new earth are revealed. Listen to Revelation 21, just a few verses. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth passed away and there was no longer any sea. And I saw the holy city, a new Jerusalem, coming down out of, heaven, out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among them, and he will dwell among them, and they shall be his people, and God himself will be among them. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there will be no longer any death. There will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. And he who sits on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Friends, do you long for the new heavens and the new earth? If your hope and your life is lived and fixed in such a way as to where you would think this is all there is, Friends, you're sadly mistaken. The beauty of what is to come. Why in the world would these false teachers desire to be there? I wonder if you are not a Christian this morning. I wonder if you have thought about what heaven will be like. I also wonder if you have made the connection that if the things of God so disinterest you today, what makes you think that you will be more interested then? Maybe the greater question isn't about disinterest. Maybe you're here, not a Christian, and it's not just that you're not interested in heaven. Maybe the greater question and issue for you is that you're disqualified. If 
If the new heavens and the new earth are a place where righteousness dwells, do you think you could ever get there if you are unrighteous? Maybe you think heaven by its very nature must include all people. Maybe you think that because your deeds are better than other people that you know, that God is going to grade on the bell curve and you are good to go. Friends, vital to understanding what Peter is saying here is the reality that not every human has the same eternal future. That's what the Bible teaches. And Christianity teaches that there is a God who has made us and who will judge us. And the Bible teaches that not one of us will be saved by the good works that we do because we are all sinners by nature and we're sinners by by actions. And our actions confirm our nature. And so if any of us would find a, a place in this new heavens and new earth being with God, it would be not because of our works. It would be completely and solely because of the work of another. And friends, that's what Christians understand to be called grace. Grace. God in in mercy and kindness would send his son, Jesus. Jesus would live a perfect life and he would die an undeserving death on the cross in place of sinners. And then he would display The fact that he has conquered death by his resurrection, proving that he is living and that he will come again. And the future of those who do not turn from their sin and do not place their faith and their trust and their hope in Christ alone, they will not be with God in the new heavens and the new earth. But the gracious invitation of God is that no matter what you showed up this morning, No matter what state you showed up this morning, being entrenched in your sins, rebellious against God, disinterested in God, through turning from your sin and placing your faith and trust in the work of Jesus alone, you can dwell with God. And that not only informs eternity, it also informs today. Friends, if you've not trusted Christ, I would plead with you to do that. And you think, well, what is it that I, there there has to be something else that I have to do. The biggest thing you have to do is come to the end of thinking that you can do something. Turn from your sin. Trust in Christ. It would be the joy of any person in this room to talk to you about what that means. And even tell you the story about how Christ has taken an undeserving sinner like us and made us what we could never be. Accept it. Friends, turn. And for my Christian brothers and sisters, the only things that are going to survive the fires of judgment on this earth holy behaviors and godliness. Christian friends, you are just because we are in Christ doesn't mean that we're no longer tempted by the world. We know all too well the temptations to try to find meaning in building something that is not just here today, gone tomorrow. And that's why many of you are throwing yourselves, maybe even unhealthily, into your portfolio and into your job. 
It's because you're thinking, I've got, to, I've got to build and work towards equity so that there can be a sense of power and success. I have to have a professional reputation because that would give me power and success. I, I have to create art because that gives me a pride over what it is uh, that I can create. I have to collect the best so that I have pride and superiority over what others have. Friends, the great missionary C.T. Studd, he was right when he said, only one life which will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Christian brothers and sisters, don't give in to the temptation to continue to live as if this world is all that there is. I'm helped by what John Piper says here. A life lived for the world will go naked to judgment. And a life lived for Christ will be laden with eternal riches. Under the spotlight of eternity, are you devoting yourself today to what will last for eternity? The gospel didn't just break sin's power in our lives. It gives us the grace and the helper, the spirit, to live holy lives. That leads us to our second section in encouraging us to live for what lasts. Section number two, live on mission and rightly in God's word. Live on mission and rightly in God's word. We see this in verses 14 through 16. And Peter sort of provides the Divisions for us by, again, the phrase of affection, beloved. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and regard the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as also our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given him, wrote to you, as also in all his letters, speaking in them of these things, in which are some things hard to understand which the untaught and the unstable distort, as they do also the rest of the scriptures to their own destruction. And so maybe you read 2 Peter chapter 3, 11 through 18, and you think, I can understand point one. Live, for what la- uh, live godly lives because of, because of what is to come. And, and you think, okay, point two, live on mission and rightly in God's word. And you think, I don't understand how in the world live on mission comes from verses 14 through 16. Look again at verse 14. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, what would these things be? It would be the return of the Lord, the heavens and the earth being consumed, and a new heavens, new earth being created. And so since you look for those things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless, and blameless. Is Peter talking about three separate things? He's really trying to say, let's dissect what in peace means, let's dissect what spotless means and blameless means, or is he using three descriptors to capture one reality? I believe he's using three descriptors to capture one reality. And the reality would be this. What is it that we are saved to? Well, we could say most fundamentally, we are saved to God. We are saved from our sins and we are saved to God. 
The good news, Christian, is that you get God. You get God. You, deserving of everything but God. You get God. But the Bible also paints a picture that says we are saved to a life of good works. And those dots will be connected as the Bible makes clear that those who see God will be those whose lives are marked by good works. Not those who work in order to get to God, but those who are given grace by God who then evidence it by their lives. We are saved to a life of good works. Ephesians 2 chapter uh, Ephesians chapter 2 verse 10. Why is it that we've been saved by grace through faith not as a result of works so that no man would boast because we are Christ's workmanship walking out in a life of godliness and obedience the good works that he had prepared beforehand. We are to live lives that are holy as he is holy, 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 16. We are to be saved and to be purified, ready for the wedding day when we receive the bridegroom Christ, Ephesians 5, verse 27. The Bible paints a picture that says Christians are saved to a life of holiness. And so part of the answer to the question, why in the world are Christians still on this earth after they are saved? In part, they are to bring God glory through the lives, the holy lives that they lead. And so in light of the coming end of this world, and and let's be clear, let's just say that it's another 2,000 before the Lord returns. Recognize the few that you have left. The coming into this world is a reason to be found at peace with God, living holy lives. Christ came into the world not only to save us from the guilt of sin, but to save us to a life of holiness. I appreciate what J.C. Ryle says here. We must be holy because this is the one grand end and purpose for which Christ came into the world. He is a complete Savior. He does not merely take away the guilt of a believer's sin. He does more. He breaks its power and calls him to live holy. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 13. Perhaps you were here and what has wrecked your mind and life is just The question, what in the world is God's will for my life? 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, 13 says, For this is the will of God, your sanctification. That's the $5 term for your growth in godliness. God's will for your life is to grow in godliness. Christian brothers and sisters, Many of us are too at peace with worldliness in our homes. Many of us are too at ease with sin in our lives. Many of us are too content with spiritual immaturity that marks our lives. 
And there's such a, a resurgence in our day, and I'm, I'm thankful. I believe there's a, there's a, a right and good place for this. I'm, uh, there's such a resurgence in our day, this renewed passion that many Christians have for transforming the city, for social justice, for precise theology, and for evangelism. And to be clear, I believe that when those things are rightly understood and they're rightly practiced, each of those things are needed. But the question I have is, where is the generation of Christians who are consumed and equally as passionate about holy living? In fact, many in our day will shy away because we think, ah, that's legalism. To talk about living holy lives, uh, we're getting really, really close to legalism. And so let's just sort of fly the, the flag of, of grace and let's not worry about holy living. No, 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 we fly the flag of grace and that flag flying then gives us cause to be concerned about holy living. Almost more than any other issue, the Bible calls us to be holy, as God is holy. I just even wonder, uh, Ephesians 5.3, this idea of not even a, not even a, a hint of immorality. When was the last time you applied that to any standard, any form of entertainment? When was the last time it just sort of consumed you to be thinking, how can I get away from even a hint of that which is encouraging unholiness or ungodliness? This letter is about growing in godliness. Friends, is your life, is it marked by more holiness now than it, it was two years ago? And let's be clear, the message of the Christian faith is not here are a set of rules in order to follow to be holy, but here is a Savior who's a friend to sinners and who brings unholy sinners into fellowship with Him and by His Spirit makes them more and more holy. But it's not just living for what we were redeemed for, holiness, but verse 15, it's also regarding the patience of our Lord as salvation. Friends, if the time that we still have is owing to God's patience, then Peter says, understand that it is a time of salvation. If the Lord hasn't yet returned, then that means that this is a day of salvation. However long you have, I pray that you would live your life, Christian, in faithfulness to share the good news. Use this time of God's patience to share the gospel. Use this time of God's patience to let people know the way to God is through the work of Christ, turning from sin and faith in Him alone. Think about it. It's during this time of patience that you became a Christian. Praise God that He did not come sooner before you were brought into his fold. As we prepare to celebrate 11 years as a church, I am encouraged at many things. One of the things that most encourages me about this church is the culture of discipling, the culture of community. I regularly hear stories of how just believers are 
living lives together and opening up and, and walking alongside one another in meaningful ways, helping us grow in godliness. And my prayer is that if the Lord were, would be pleased to give us another decade, that we would see not that culture diminish. No, that, that culture would continue to be strengthened. But that just as, as equal would be this growth in this culture of evangelism. And I know that some of us are faithfully sharing the gospel regularly, but my sense is that this faithful, consistent, almost every week type sharing the gospel is not typical. Sadly, it's not typical for many in our church. Beginning with me. Friends, I pray that the Spirit would allow us to to see that changed. That we would see that this is a time of patience from the Lord, which means it's a time for salvation. And that we would busy ourselves with sharing the gospel. And maybe you think that's such a big hurdle to go from where I'm at to think of sharing the gospel with someone. Then I would, I would plead with you, fine, just take three people, begin to commit to pray for them every day for the next three months. Included in that prayer, Lord, give me opportunity the next time I see them to share the hope of Christ. I would love, as we think about the future of coming to life, that there would just be a list of people that we begin to pray for, that God began to give us opportunities to share the good news with, and that God was faithful to save. So live holy lives. Share the gospel with everyone that you can. That's what I mean when I say live on mission. But also live rightly in the word of God. This is yet another example where Peter is affirming confidence in the scriptures. Christians will not be blown off course if the Bible is their compass. And in these two verses, Peter says a lot about the scriptures in verses 15 and 16. These are a few things that Peter says in verses 15 and 16. He says, Paul agrees with what I have written. If you were to look at Romans chapter 2, verse 4, if you were to look at 2 Corinthians 6, verse 2, what you would find is Paul saying, this is the day of salvation. The Lord's patience is meant to cause us to plead with people to trust Christ. We also see in verse 15 that Paul was given inspiration to write the scriptures. And so Paul's writings are not just Paul's ideas. No, he was given wisdom. He was inspired by the Spirit to write out these scriptures. Verse 16 states that Paul's writings were regarded as scripture. So think about this. Some 30 years after the ascension of Christ, Peter is writing and Peter is referring to Paul's writings as just, just as solid as he thought of the scriptures as the Old Testament. That word that's used there, graphe, it's used 49 other times in the New Testament. And every other time, it refers to the Old Testament scriptures. And so Peter recognizes Paul's writings as being on par with the Old Testament. Peter also notes that some passages 
in which Paul wrote are difficult to understand. Maybe you're thinking, praise God. I thought it was just me. It's not just you. Peter, inspired by the the Spirit, says, no, no, there are certain things in Scripture that are difficult to understand. But let's be clear, Christians have, have always believed in the clarity of Scripture. The clarity of Scripture. If you're really desiring a a word, you can think the perspicuity of Scripture means clarity. It's ironic because the word is not. (laughs) Christians believe that the main things are the plain things. And the plain things are the main things. It's this idea that there's clarity in the Scriptures. The message of salvation is clear. The basic, most central elements of the biblical storyline are understandable. You don't have to have a seminary degree in order to understand it. You don't have to be the sharpest knife in the drawer to fully understand it. You can explain it to a seven-year-old in the way a seven-year-old could understand it. But... We've always said that that doesn't mean that everything in Scripture is equally clear. There is a place in the study of the Scriptures for scholarship, for study, for original languages, for ancient cultures, for doctrines that stretch our minds. And so while some things are difficult to understand, we believe that the most basic, the main things are clear to be understood. He also makes known in verse 16 that sometimes people get the Scriptures wrong. Difficult passages still have right interpretations. Most shockingly, Peter says that wrong interpretations can kill you. These false teachers were modeling this. They had a wrong interpretation of the scripture and it was leading them to destruction. And so just because people show up and they say, this is what the Bible says, doesn't mean that that's necessarily what the Bible says. And some interpretations of scripture are deadly. They're deadly. There's certainly room for Christians to disagree on issues. Romans 14, uh, Romans 14 makes this clear. And we need to have a category that's marked by good Christians who disagree. But Peter is saying the opposite here. Peter is saying that there are some that are not, that there are some issues that we can't simply agree to disagree on the interpretation because they're deadly. And that some people are out there twisting it, and they're twisting it, not thinking that they're leading to gain, but they're leading to destruction. Whether or not Christians strive for holiness or whether or not sexual sin is to be taken seriously is not a topic that we can agree to disagree on. And that's what these false teachers were promoting. Getting the Bible wrong is dangerous to your soul, friends. A community that fights to get it right with the right heart posture is a rare jewel indeed. And so commit there. And that brings us to our last section. Number three, live guarded against sin 
and growing in grace. Live guarded against sin and growing in grace. We see this in verses 17 and 18. One final beloved sets the scene for the finale to the whole letter. And I believe in verses 17 and 18, these, uh, the, the two commands could capture the whole letter. Be on your guard against false teachers and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Be on guard and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Verse 17 gives us the defensive command first, to be on guard so as to not be carried away by false teachers or to not fall from a place of security. And what Peter says, I appreciate what he says in verse 17. You therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, a plea of ignorance wouldn't suffice for these Christians. They were warned of this. And the same for us. The Bible tells us that the Lord guards those who are His. We see this in 2 Thessalonians 3. We see this in Jude 24. The Lord guards those who are His. But that never negates diligence on the part of His people to give in or to be susceptible to attacks. How would they be carried away? By holding a view about the future that would cause them to live immoral lives today. Christians evidence their position with God not by ignoring His commands to fight sin, but by heeding His commands to fight sin. Christians evidence their position with God not by falling for any teaching, but by living rightly according to the scriptures and testing everything that is taught. And again, church, I pray that you would see even the graces and the gift of church membership, of a church statement of faith, of a church covenant, of partaking of the Lord's Supper, of listening to sermons, of singing scripture-rich songs, participating in community groups and other small group study. I pray that you would see those things, things that we have said are important in this church as a means to ensuring and protecting your soul, ensuring that your soul is not taken away, that you're not left vulnerable, but that you are guarding against winds that would seek to topple you over in your faith. But it's not just guarding against, not just the defensive posture Peter ends the letter with, he also ends it with the offensive posture of growing in grace and knowledge. Over and over, Peter makes clear, you are either growing in the Christian life or you're drifting in the Christian life. Martin Luther would say that this life, therefore, is not righteousness, but growth in righteousness. It's not health, but healing. It's not being, but becoming. It's not rest, but exercise. We are not yet what we shall be, but the Christian life is one in which is growing towards what we shall be. And then what more fitting way to end this whole letter? It's as if someone were to say, Okay, Peter, I've heard everything that you said. Why in the world should I live this way? Why should I guard myself and why should I give myself to growing in the grace and knowledge 
of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And the last line, not amen, but the one before that. The motive for our action is the glory of Christ. To him be the glory, both now, now, and to the day of eternity. We are moved in everything we do for the glory of Christ. This is to be the heartbeat of every Christian. No matter what I'm doing, it's for his glory. His glory both eternally, but also his glory today. And this glory is to be given to Christ now. It's to be given to him forever. The one who will be glorified eternally is also to be glorified in your life today. These false teachers were coming and they were denying the opportunity for Christ to be glorified today, which then denied the opportunity for him to be glorified in eternity. This benediction really does pull the whole letter together. Knowing that he will have glory forever leads us to live for him today. This has implications for you and I today. Friends, that means don't wait until tomorrow. Today. Today is the day of salvation. Today is the day of bringing Christ glory. Christians, we will do this in eternity, which means we ought to be doing it now. How is Christ glorified in your life today? And to my non-Christian friends, what are you bringing glory to today? What are you giving your life to today? What are you saying is worth your everything today? And whatever that answer is, will that answer satisfy your soul a hundred years from today? Friends, live. Live with reality and eternity in mind. There is more to this life than just today. As you live in restraint to sinful pleasures, you bring him glory by showing that he is sufficient and that he satisfies your life even when it's hard. You were made to have Christ as the center of your life. Spend your life bringing glory to him. As one pastor says, the best fertilizer for our hope and godliness is the knowledge of our future in God's grace. And so it's as if Peter says, well, then may grace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God. And he closes with the command to grow into the grace and the knowledge of our God. If we knew but a fraction of the future God is making for us, if we could begin to feel that our deepest longings will be satisfied, that every beauty of the world will be preserved and heightened, every good affection that you have will soar, every proper relationship will be restored forever, and that all pain and all frustration and all ugliness would vanish. That, that, the fish will bite before the worm hits the water. Jesus will fill the world with the, the golden light of his glory. If we could just believe what no eye has seen or no ear has heard or the, no, nor the heart of man conceived, what God has prepared to those who love him. 
If we could see it, friends, our hearts would be free from the greed and the fears and the lesser things that we live for today. We would escape from the corruption that is in this world. And by grace, we can become partakers of the divine nature. Oh, that he would be pleased to make this so very soon. Let's pray. Our holy God, as we close this letter, I pray that our hearts would be fully open to being responsive to your spirit. God, I beg you in this moment that you would not allow us to just begin the Rolodex of what is to come this afternoon. But in this moment, you would make clear to us how we ought to respond. God, please make covenant life a people who live with eternity in mind. And if that be the case, then we will pursue holiness at all costs. And we will share the scandalous message of your grace at every turn. Forgive us where that isn't true of us. And Lord, hasten the day that you will come back. Oh, we can't wait when faith gives way to sight. And so in this moment of silence, speak to us now, we pray.